Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Ladies and gentlemen, in addition to all of that, this episode contains meticulous description of in-camera special effects and more of Una O'Connor. You have been warned. And now, let's return to a new world of gods Gods and and monsters. monsters. (laughs) Why? Why do it, Griffin? Just a scientific experiment at first. That's all. To do something no other man in the world had done. But there's more to it than that, Kemp. I know now. It came to me suddenly. The drugs I took seemed to light up my brain. Suddenly I realized the power I held. The power to rule. To make the world grovel at my feet. (laughs) We'll soon put the world right now, Kemp. You and I. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo finds itself within the cozy confines of the Lion's Head Inn in the village of Iping, amidst a terrible torrent of snowfall. All is rather fine, and wait a minute. A stranger has just walked in. He's a rather peculiar gentleman, with bandages right to the top of his head. He has told the innkeeper he wishes to be left alone. Well, I'd wager that the man who just entered the inn is none other than scientist Jack Griffin, and no doubt he is there to find a way back from a concoction that has rendered him invisible. Well, listeners, I sure hope the innkeeper leaves a chap like that alone for— Oh, wait a minute. Oh my. A shirt just walked down the stairs and bolted out the door ranting and raving. It can only mean that Jack Griffin has lost it and has greater aspirations now beyond regaining invisibility. That's right, folks. Tonight, the Ballyhoo continues its trends of monsters and horror with a true triumph of visual effects and sheer terror as we sit down to James Whale's 1933 production, The Invisible Man. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. talking to? I give you a last chance to leave me alone. Give me a last chance. You've committed assault this when you've done, and you can come along to the station with me. Come along now, come quietly, unless you want me to put the handcuffs on. Stop where you are. You don't know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing, all right. Come on. Get all of him. Lock him up. All right, you fools. You've brought it on yourselves. Everything would have come right if you'd only left me alone. You've driven me near madness with your peering through the keyholes and gaping through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. 
There's a souvenir for you. And one for you. I'll show you who I am and what I am. <laughs> Look, he's all eaten away. Jaffers, what do you think? He's invisible. Less was the matter with him. If he gets the rest of them clothes off, we'll never catch him in a thousand years. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1933, James Whale upped the ante on his horror game by tackling H.G. Wells' novel that conjures up a vision of a man gone mad by science with the ability to go while never be come and go while never be seeing. <laughs> with the ability to come and go while never be seeing. It's a film that would not only cement Wales' reputation amongst monster aficionados, but would also be one of two films in 1933 that would test the limits of on-screen visual effects, the other being, of course, King Kong. What's more, with all the technical wizardry that is uh, present in The Invisible Man, there is also the unmistakable voice of Jack Griffin himself, Mr. Claude Rains, a man who did not need to show his face to show his power and would begin his long journey throughout Hollywood as arguably its finest character actor in this very film. So how has The Invisible Man managed to stay so enticing? How did it get made? And what do we see in today's work that it innovates? Well, to answer that, we need our own Constable Jaffers and the Ballyhoo has such a man. He is a podcaster whose musings on Real Nerds podcast each week give you the lowdown on the latest releases coming down the pipeline. And today he is here to lend his horror knowledge and monster squad credentials to the Ballyhoo so that we may catch this invisible fiend once and for all ladies and gentlemen please welcome back to the show ryan frost okay please stop applauding please no, no, okay no. gentlemen, settle down settle yeah, down ladies and gentlemen he's not that please. great <laughs> please please i know i know oh my god they're tearing off their panties and throwing them at you <laughs> ma'am ma'am i'm married please <laughs> welcome back buddy this is this hey, has been. Thanks a, for having me. Yeah, this has been a minute, and um, I can't think of a better way to get you back in here, except of course Irene Dunn, which it was in the works, and then uh, as the show has become yesteryear Bally Boo review for the month of October, um, I was like, you know what, we need to get Ryan in here for Monster Talk, um, and we've kind of talked about doing this as far back. Uh, as Ballyhoo's origins, because the Invisible Man is a movie that we both have a uh, a major consensus on, which is that he is the most terrifying and the most uh, uh, murderous of the of the Universal monsters, without any question. <laughs> I, I think he's. I, I think the Invisible Man's the best Universal monster film. Mm. Uh, I, I know some people will <laughs> bring pitchforks and torches. Um, kill the monster that, kill the one who doesn't like the frankenstein <laughs> yeah uh some people say frankenstein or bride um but to me what sets the invisible man apart from all of them is well i mean i guess you can throw lugosi's count dracula in there mm-hmm. well, but yes, i think claude rains <laughs> i think claude rains as the invisible one is uh is terrifying 
and without remorse. And every time they try to remake this film, which is whether it's Hollow Man or uh, the latest film, which is really good too, but there's no one has ever captured the sure insanity of Claude Rains, I think. Yeah, it's um that that's that's something that you brought up in terms of um Hollow Man cuz like the inv- the latest invisible man from Lee Wannell um and starring Elizabeth Moss um goes in a decidedly different albeit wonderful direction. Um because there is no real malevolent monologue abound in that recent remake hollow man though does have kevin bacon given spiels left and right but also acting like in like a, 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 a it's funny i'm not a big fan of hollow man however undeniably he is pure evil in that movie <laughs> like, yeah but i'd also say that uh in hollow man kevin bacon kind of goes insane from being invisible where uh Dr. Griffin, I think, is uh, always maniacal and is always full of himself. Yes. And well, he does he, have he, the madness driven to him from Monocane, but it's like it's almost like he's bringing something out that was already there. Yeah, because they even in the little sn- snippets with his colleagues, they talk about it that, of course, he would do this. He's so arrogant. And, mm. um, you know, it's there's just interesting things, and Reigns is so great in this film. I mean, I know you'll expunge on it more, but like he's so great because the parts where Flora shows up, he changes. But you know, as he's explaining to her why it's important for how he is, he's he's still too far gone. He'll never come back. Yeah. It's almost like, it's almost like the effects of the monocane um, recede when he's amongst Flora. But then as he keeps talking about his machinations plans, they, uh, it, it it overcomes him again. So it's like, he can, he can barely return back to where he was. And it's not till the end of the film when you need him to recant before his death that, Oh, spoiler alerts for the movie, by the way, you should have already watched it when the trailer was playing. That's the, that's the it's 90 the years show, old almost. That, <laughs> that's the way the show works. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think when I, you know, I love this movie and I, as I've been really digging into old Hollywood um, over the last, I don't know, five, six years, uh, the ending is, I go, Oh, that was tacked on. <laughs> right. Where he, in his, so he's shot, Spoilers. He's shot dead. <laughs> and then he's somehow alive long enough to tell Flora that he's made a horrible mistake. And yeah. <laughs> I go, okay. I know. I should I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm dead. <laughs> yeah, that's the code at work. Although I would argue that uh, as far as convenient endings go, this one does kind of fall in line with you know what the ultimate end of Griffin would be technically. I mean, it's, yeah, well, it's not out of and, the ordinary <laughs> and you get that last great effect shot. Yeah, we'll get to it, but great. I have a question for you before we get into it. We, we've already talked about your love for the invisible man, but what is your history with universal monsters in general? I want to know that origin story. I, I know that your grandpa bill was a instrumental uh, um, figure in your, 
early Hollywood history as well as, and then, you know, like in just watching stuff with him. Yeah. So for Hollywood movies, like, uh, uh, old Westerns, uh, my grandpa Bill was really instrumental in that he would always have early Hollywood films on. And that's where, uh, my love for like Maltese Falcon came from because he loved Bogart and he loved, the crime stuff and the Westerns, the, the universal monsters though, is actually from my father. Uh, he, yeah, he would always, <laughs> it's kind of funny. My dad loved the creature from the black lagoon. So huh. that was the first universal monster movie I saw. And after that one, my dad introduced me to Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. <laughs> um, and then I went down. Uh, I mean, I was really young. And then I started going down the rabbit hole. I, I, I want to say Dracula was next. And when I was young, I wasn't as impressed with Dracula as I am now. Mm. It's funny because most people have the reverse effect. They're impressed by Dracula. And now they're just like, it's skilled and boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I appreciate Dracula more now because of Lugosi and yeah. his commanding performance. And, and uh, what's the guy's name who plays uh, Reinfeld? Oh, uh, Dwight him. Fry, Dwight Fry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he makes appearance in his land. But he, like, he does, yeah. <laughs> uh, but he's great in it. And so, you know, once you get past, I was used to vampires as, you know, the Lost Boys or something where it's violent and, cool they they and, wouldn't let me play a saxophone shirtless in that movie ryan <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but you you slowly learn um that you the the performance is what drives that film yeah and so yeah i think the last ones i actually saw were uh frankenstein and bride of frankenstein mm. um I, I i did like the wolfman too <laughs> um god i love the wolf you know Man. i i, I it's hard because when you see Abba Costello first, <laughs> uh, I, I love the scene in that where the Wolfman's trying to grab them and he keeps on just missing as he's trying to sneak up. Because uh, <laughs> the timing of Lou Costello moving around, it's just so, it's like a dance. That movie has yeah. like elements of a dance to it. It's fantastic. Oh yeah. It's uh, so, yeah, but it, it's kind of uh, fun to go back and watch these. And then, you know, when I discovered the invisible man, I don't remember when, but I remember just being, uh, so transfixed by the performance Mm -hmm. and you have this set expectations of universal monsters that there might be a couple deaths. I mean, of course, and, and Frankenstein, the big one is a little girl that he just throws in the river, but, uh, but in this, he to me I, why the invisible man's my favorite monster is because i think he's a true monster where someone like the wolfman or even frankenstein the bride of frankenstein or i guess the monster and the bride of the monster is there yeah, really get not it right wanting... just get it right it's the frankenstein <laughs> yeah. monster not frankenstein <laughs> yeah. and they're really not 
bad people. <laughs> they're they're really tragic figures. Yeah, even uh, Dracula could technically you could technically have an argument for Dracula being a victim of that, but also he doesn't do himself any favors by comparison to other monsters in the canon. Yeah, but I mean, Dracula is. I guess he's why he's not as scary to me is because I that I don't think that's his purpose. His purpose is he's more seductive and uh, more refined. Where when you watch The Invisible Man, I mean, I don't, he murders hundreds of people in this movie. And I think they uh, push the boundaries of what's acceptable at that time with the murder of his colleague, where he's dragging him out by his scarf and choking him. And yeah, there's uh, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, as you said, boundary pushing, and it also, it's meaner than other monster yeah. movies. It's a mean movie. It's a very yeah, because he's <laughs> he has no remorse. He, I mean, uh, when he brings Kemp out, he he brings him out for the sole purpose of killing him. Yeah, dragging That's him, his- dragging him by the neck with his scar- like with the scarf around his neck. He's pulling on that scarf as he pulls him out of that car to tie him up. Yeah. It's it's he's brutal in a way that yep. no other monster is allowed to be. Even like um, the original Phantom of the Opera can be a bit brutal at times, but even he's not as sadistic as this. Yeah, and there's a there's you're right. There's a meanness to him that isn't there, and I think maybe why he's not a, a Dracula isn't as terrifying because Dracula is still moved by like love mm-hmm. you know he he is trying to he's a romantic monster where i mean the invisible man has no remorse he does not care and he's and it helps that claude rains is so powerful in it and uh you know where you might think that his maniacal laughing was is over the top but it fits the character it's never too much for me. I don't know if you feel the same way, but when I watch it, it makes sense that his first, you know, he's just teasing them by throwing the ink on the police or uh, pushing them around, Mm -hmm. but he slowly evolves into this realizing he can do whatever he wants and he can kill whoever he wants and they won't even see it coming. And I think that's a powerful moment in any monster is he's, pretty much unstoppable yeah he's um the jack griffin saga to me conjures up the uh, the the uh, it's it's you are watching a personality in a raw a, a, a malevolent personality in a raw form and you're watching the you're you're watching the effects of what power does to a person um i think that there's like a, there's a key thing about what any form of power does to a single human being and like the, the delusions of grandeur that it conjures up. And, you know, like this isn't like a, a key factor necessarily in the universal monsters success. And especially with the invisible man, but you know, the same year that this comes out is the same year that Hitler rises to power in Germany um, attacked onto that the effects of World War One and and the elements of power that people possessed at that time that led to war. You you get this like weird preview of Hitler coming through um 
it's it's very very strange to watch this movie come out in the same year that he takes power because it's almost like this weird preview of the dangers of too much power that one man can hold. Um, but putting aside sociopolitical context to it, the movie is just about like, it really does come down to this, like the, 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 the power of the mind and how far it can take you in your own delusion. And, it doesn't help when you have the elements of science added to it that are conveniently changed uh, from the original source novel. So about now, before we get to now, before we get to uh, the movie itself, had you ever read the book prior to this? I haven't. I did when I was a kid. Um, I didn't really get into the book. It's a good book. I just I just wasn't fully invested in it. But the movie came amidst my time discovering the monsters and I and Dracula was first as I said in previous episodes. Um The Invisible Man came to my attention as the next in line of stuff that I was picking up from um we had a Video Visions uh near us, you see, before it became a blockbuster. And uh uh, this is again a situation where the Universal Monsters had um, been resurge had a resurgence, and they were doing these behind the scenes documentaries that were directed by David J. Skull. And learning about the movie and then watching the movie were instrumental in me understanding and appreciating the monsters. And a big part of it is also we've been we haven't really brought him up yet but James Whale's direction mm. and I was enamored by his story as well as his direction of the movie as a kid because it's not it's not just a sincere horror movie it's also got a lot of campy humor in it um courtesy of James Whale um arguably uh, I I would think arguably Ryan that if I have a dark sense of humor it technically starts here um because this movie's filled with dark jokes and dark humor abound. Um, and naturally this all begins with the novel by HG Wells. Now HG Wells, um, he'll come up a bunch on Ballyhoo because of, uh, a certain broadcast, uh, in May 1938, uh, when I scared the nation as me, Orson Welles, the other Wells, uh, took the other Wells's book and turned it into a modern nightmare. Uh, but uh, you also have Island of Dr. Moreau, which would become a very, very influential horror film called The Island of Lost Souls with Bela Lugosi. Um, but H.G. Wells is the founder of science fiction, essentially. He's the one who practically creates the genre. Um, one of the reasons why his works uh, compel so much and why the science works uh, for the invisible man is that he is able to take nonsensical basic scientific jargon or approximations of scientific jargon and deliver it in a straightforward manner to the point where you believe it. If, if he's treating it seriously, then you're treating it seriously as the reader. Um, and the original invisible man had him going mad from strychnine in addition to, the concoction along with a machine uh, that rendered him invisible. And that's where we get the madness stuff. Now, this story published in 1897, um, uh, first as a uh, series of um, uh, installments um, in Pearson's magazine. Uh, 
ended up being published the same year as a full book. Um, it gets optioned by Universal after being rejected at places like MGM because they thought this idea would be impossible. How are you going to make an invisible man? Um, but Universal got in on the ground floor early on. They had a treatment as far back as the 20s. Um, I think right, primarily just because they saw potential in the marketing of the title of this book and the author of this book. But uh, Ryan, I think we both prepared in the same way by going through our respective copies of the Blu-ray bonus features on this. Oh, yeah. And it's amazing how many people tried to write an Invisible Man movie that had nothing to do with the book. <laughs> yeah, it's... You find that more and more, I think, in this era of the book is really just a name mm. and it guides them. Yeah, it's 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 like uh, it, it it's in a sense, it's endearing because you can always like there are times when you can just take the title and then create something way better. Like uh, the Black Cat is an example, like not to say that Edgar Allan Poe's The Black Cat is a bad story, but it's OK. <laughs> ar arguably. Yeah, arguably, though. The 1934 movie, The Black Cat, does something completely innovative with the title by having nothing to do with that book and basically just being its own tale of terror involving incest and devil worship. <laughs> like, it's, it's insane. And this one in particular, you know, even prior to Universal wanting to get in on the H.G. Wells bandwagon, there had been other instances of invisibility in film. Um, you had it as far back as 1904 with George Milliez's The Invisible Sylvia. Um, you then had the 1905 film The Invisible Thief, which is a French film. You had Biograph's film The Invisible Fluid, um, which had temporary invisibility on men and inanimate objects. Um, so basically just temporary invisibility on men. hey um, <laughs> And uh, you also had The uh, the Unseen in 1914. Um and in the UK in 1910, you had the invisible dog. So even before there were invisible men, there were invisible dogs. And in 1923, you had unknown per the unknown purple. And uh, in the same year as the invisible man, the UK has a film called The Invisible Man Goes Through the City. So this is a concept that has always been around. But the technical innovations of this particular film that we are discussing are the reasons why it is the one invisible themed movie from this period that still stands out in our minds. Um, the earlier drafts of this film are fucking nuts. <laughs> you, <laughs> first of all, there is another influence on this piece, which is another book called The Murderer Invisible by Philip Wiley. And initially, Robert Florey, the uh, always the bridesmaid, never the bride on uh, Universal Monster Movies, he was attached to virtually every big property within Universal Monsters, first with Frankenstein and then this. And him and Garrett Fort, the original writer of Dracula, one of the original writers on Dracula and Frankenstein, um, one of the original writers on Dracula, he 
based the treatment on the murder invisible with Flory, which involved, amongst other things, making an octopus invisible before making the man invisible himself, and then turning up to cause mayhem in New York City, blowing up, amongst other things, Grand Central Station, and then thwarting the, and then he gets thwarted before he can disperse bacteria into the water supply uh, that will spread across the city. In their treatment, they replaced him putting it into the water supply by sending in an army of invisible rats carrying bubonic plague into the city. Now, I'm not saying we need that movie, Ryan, but I want that movie. <laughs> invisible rats? <laughs> I don't know how effective it would be on a visual scale, but it would be certainly interesting. Um, now, you also had John H. Balderston and Cyril Gardner trying a treatment. And what if I were to tell you that uh, you mentioned the Maltese Falcon earlier, Ryan? You know? What if yeah, I told you good that, movie. What if I told you that John Houston wrote a treatment for The Invisible Man? I'd want to see that one. I would, too. I, I don't know why they didn't accept my idea. Um, now we don't really know what his treatment consisted of, but he was a writer for universal at this time. And there is a theory based on things that sheriff related that there, this could be the treatment, but it could also be a treatment for a project that RC sheriff and whale had, for another film called A Trip to Mars. But an idea that involved an invisible man was actually a, uh, a man, invisible man from Mars who threatened to flood the world with invisible Martians. Um, I don't know. I don't care who came up with that. We need that movie today. I need the invisible <laughs> Martian this fucking instant. <laughs> I, 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 the more you look at these... Uh, these potential ideas, the more you're just like, well, obviously it wouldn't work for the, the, the monster series that we know and love, but there's no reason to say that you couldn't do this today, especially with the effect. We, if we can make John Carter of Mars, we can make the, uh, we can make the invisible Martian. <laughs> um, and now what everybody keeps forgetting is that when the deal was made, in 1930 in, in 1931 for the rights to this book Wells was given $10,000 and script approval so it's like why are you trying to write this story <laughs> in several <laughs> different ways when the author has script approval <laughs> our, our a lot of money too back yeah, then that's a, that's a 10 grand yeah 10 grand and script approval Wells was asking for the moon and I, I am shocked that it took them that long to figure out, like, well, say, not only should we not do silly ideas, but we should also probably not, um, uh, you know, I don't know, stray too far from the source material considering somebody uh, has approval over the project. Um, that just seems to me that, you know, it just, it just boggles my mind. Um, and... Now, Universal had still had James Whale under contract, and James Whale had already broken the barriers with uh, Frankenstein. Now, he had also made The Old Dark House, which also featured Boris Karloff, 
Old Dark House didn't do as well for them as they would have liked. Um, if anybody hasn't seen the Old Dark House, I would love to talk about it someday because it is... Um, there are elements of it that you end up finding in House of a Thousand Corpses, oddly enough. Um, not oddly enough. I mean, it makes complete sense given who Rob Zombie is. Um, but it's a film that is both a horror film, but also a very black comedy. And as a result, it doesn't, I don't, I, I fully believe that nobody at the time was fully in on the joke. Um, so whale is still a, uh, a, a gem child at universal. Lemley jr. Loves him. And they are trying to get him to do a Bride of Frankenstein or a sequel to Frankenstein. They were going to be the Return of Frankenstein was one of the titles floated about. And James Whale was just like, no, 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 please. Anything but that. What's this? An invisible man? Oh, okay. This sounds delightful. And so he and R.C. Sheriff um, go through it. Prior to this, James Whale wrote a treatment for the Invisible Man that also differed from the source material. But R.C. Sheriff, as he was given the material and going back to the novel itself, he was astounded that nobody was lifting from the source material itself. So he and Whale reverse course and produce a script that is a pretty faithful adaptation with some minor concessions that uh, would appease the Hollywood thing amongst which is that there's no real love interest in, uh, in the invisible man novel. And also the love interest father played by Henry Travers in this movie uh, is, isn't present in the novel at all. And Kemp has a much smaller role in the novel. So certain things are heightened. Some things are added and some things are leveled off. And, a lot of what the film script does is provide a unified structure to what would be a very, like by comparison to today, a very short movie at 71 minutes. Um, now, Karloff was signed on to the role of the Invisible Man. Universal had already announced it. Um, but this is where we get a bit of a tie-in to our first episode on the Black Cat. I'm going to read a piece from Variety. Um, Universal is continuing its trend of dropping contract players as soon as they reach the big money class and substituting them with new people at less money. Latest Universal star to go off the list is Boris Karloff. Variety continues, At the studio 18 months, Karloff had been drawing $750 a week and was scheduled to set uh, to get um, $1,250 a week on his coming option jump. There's some, the sum represents a jump of $500 or $250 for each option period. Karloff waived the previous option increase, which would have boosted his salary to $1,000 on condition that he would receive the full amount on his next option. Universal refused to meet this figure, and Karloff walked. And it's it's pretty. I would take a guess and say that he refused the first option at a certain point because he realized how hard the depression was on everybody, including the film industry. Like there's a common misconception, as we talked about with Kathy Seeley, that in the depression, films were successful, but the studios struggled as much as every other industry in the country. It's not it's not like they were some golden exception. I think there's like there seems to be kind of a misconstrued uh theory on that you know the a lot of uh movie theaters closed at that time i i just got done reading carol lombard's one of a biography about her and they talk about it and that uh hollywood was skeezy back then they would do everything they could to not pay people to drop them from whatever production and yeah that they dropped carloff because 
of $200 a week doesn't surprise me at all. Right. And even with Universal consistently being in debt or uh, running out of money, it's not a it's it's not an unheard of um, phenomenon in film. It's frankly a trend that still extends today because you know not to bring up a true life monster, uh, necess- uh, not to bring up a true life monster, but Harvey Weinstein was notorious for this. He mm-hmm. screwed Kevin Smith out of tons of money, but. I re- I digress. Uh, you know this this means that Karloff is out. So what do they do, Ryan? They have to get somebody else. They they offer the role to Colin Clive. Whale wanted Colin Clive to do it, and the uh, role intrigued him. But he had just done two other films back to back, and he was looking to get home to England. So he passed on it. Now this is where Whale starts thinking and thinking, and he goes, "Well, I re- I remember this one." lovely voice gentleman by the name of Claude Rains. And he he just was delightful. Maybe he's done a screen test. And in fact, Rains had done a screen test uh, for a bill of divorcement. And it was, in Rains' own words, the worst screen test in history of movie making. <laughs> it, it, when Whale saw it, he howled with laughter. Now, when we think of Claude Rains... You don't think that he would give anything but a great performance. Now, his but his daughter would say, well, when you look at what he described the screen test as something it was like well-mannered, bro- way too broadly theatrical. So like he doesn't understand how film works yet. So, you know, there is this element of realizing that one of our greatest screen actors, like any other actor of that era, starts off on the stage and... Claude Rains, I think out of any actor we've ever talked about, Claude Rains is one that his history is one of the most interesting because we have an impression in our head. Like, I mean, I would assume that our first uh, exposures to Claude Rains was, well, mine was technically Invisible Man, but in within the same period was Casablanca. So we have an impression of him as a well-spoken gentleman, you know, like he's got a voice that can light up a room, Ryan. Like you, it's impossible for me to do an imitation of him, uh, bad or not, because he's just got, he's got a certain temper to his voice. What if I told you that that lovely voice was a get, was a put on that he was actually a cockney. (laughs) Thought he was a Nazi. No, 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 no. He was a he, he was part of he was part of French Vichy, but then he threw away that nasty wine and told them round up the usual suspects, which means Bogart gets away with shooting Major Strasser, and then they walk off and they have a beautiful friendship. And that's the point of Casablanca. <laughs> um, now Claude Rains was born William Claude Rains um, on uh, on November tenth, eighteen eighty nine. Um, he came from very poor beginnings. Um, he hated school. He was teased by his classmates because of a serious speech impediment. Um, that combined with a heavy Cockney accent. It's enough for any, it's, it, it, for him, it's enough to, you know, make him feel isolated and alone. He runs away very young, first appears in a crowd scene on the stage of the Haymarket theater and decides at the age of 10 that he's going to dedicate his life to the theater. Um, the Cockney accent, the stutter, and other speech impediments 
uh, included such instances as this anecdote reported by a speech that he gave when he received a medal for good speech in the theater. He said, almost my occupation was in the theater. Uh, Almost my occupation in the theater was a call boy. I had to summon actors from their dressing room to the stage. It was difficult to be taken seriously because I had an impediment in my speech. I had no R's. And if anyone asked my name, I would answer Willie Waynes. I had ideas that someday I would become an actor. And the all important thing was to get rid of the, the impediment. I discovered I had a lazy tongue, a muscle of which not had been had not been properly used because my mother thought I talked quiltily. So he you does voice and speech exercises, elocution lessons, and slowly but surely removes from him his speech impediment and the Cockney accent to deliver that powerful uh, delivery that we know and love today. Um, he makes his adult debut as Claude Rains in 1911 at the Haymarket Theater. So he he makes his full debut in the same place that he started. He is in the British Army during World War One and serves in France. In France, he was subject to heavy artillery bombardment and poison gas. As a result, while he was in the infirmary, he discovered his vocal cords had been paralyzed and he became nearly blind in the right eye, 90% blind in the right eye. That blindness, by the way, was not known by anybody except family and close friends until after his death. And Reigns attributed his husky voice to the effects of the poison gas in World War One. So already this fucker has just been through a massive life-changing experience after life-changing experience. He then goes on to put to be featured in plays that bring him great renown, amongst which a series of George Bernard Shaw plays. He is a teacher at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, whose students include Laurence Olivier and Jean Gilgood, two Oscar winners taught by a person who never won an Oscar in his fucking life. It's, it's frustrating. <laughs> and he also he makes his Broadway debut on the stage in 1926 and also joins a lot of U.S. touring companies. Now, he, be, he would become to be known as the Theater Guild's most distinguished character actor. Now, when he is brought on to the role of uh, the Invisible Man, he had not read the novel before, and he was surprised to discover that he <laughs> would not be seen on screen most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the title, The Invisible Man. <laughs> what did you... <laughs> What did you think this was going to be? And um, now there is a quote that I have here about his experience uh, with James Whale. And I think that it is absolutely worth bringing up. Um, He said in regards to that not being seen on screen, he said for five years, five years, mind you, I was printing and I was Pratting on to the Theater Guild about my artistic integrity. My artistic integrity. Then the first day at the studio, James brought over some bandages. And I asked him what they were for. And he said, oh, yes, I was to be bandaged throughout the most of the picture. And there I had been fighting with the Theater Guild about my artistic integrity. Well, it served me right. <laughs> so he gets a little bit of humbleness uh, brought on to him. And he also was not really familiar with film. 
He said, James kept talking about this and that in pictures, about actors of whom I had never heard. When he learned that I had only seen six films or so in my life, he told me to go right out and see pictures, to see three a day until I knew something about them. So he gets a crash course in film, essentially. It's, it's, it's amazing to think that one of our great screen actors entered in having only seen six films in his life. It's not like film hadn't existed for at least 30 years. You know, it's, it's, it's quite astounding and remarkable. Um, now, we also have another... Uh, we, we have a stacked cast in here of British character actors. Um, and I think it's important to bring up the the main um, Una in the room. <laughs> Miss Una O'Connor. Now, Ryan, what is your, what is your impression of Una O'Connor? Cause I think she uh, is, she is uh, an acquired taste for people. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's, <laughs> I don't know, she's a little out of place in the movie and a little, uh, I don't know if grading's the right word. <laughs> But, but you know, she's there. <laughs> I love Una O'Connor. Um, I'm part of that collective that enjoys what she brings to the camp humor of the movie, uh, along with The Bride of Frankenstein. As she is born Agnes McGlade um, on October 23rd, 1880. She, atten- she attended convent school, and she joined the Abbey Players in Dublin. She made her official debut in 1911, working with the Abbey Players. She worked with the uh, the the Irish Repertory Company and the Irish Literary Theatre. And in 1913, she makes her London debut, where she acts in several plays. Amongst the works that she performs on stage are the ones of Shakespeare, O'Casey, Yeats, Ballsworthy, etc. And then in London debut at the Court Theatre in 1913. In 1931, she's in the production of Cavalcade, which then brings her to the attention of Hollywood to reprise her role as the maid, one of the maids uh, in Cavalcade. And Whale knew, Lon- knew Una from the London stage and in 1933 um, a par- uh, invited her and uh, her to be a part of The Invisible Man. Um, and Whale was very comfortable with these UK players. There's a lot of them in there. Um, we have amongst others, E.E. Clive, who we've talked about in regards to Jack Benny. This is E.E. Clive's first Hollywood movie, and in the span of seven years, E.E. Clive would be uh, racking up over 80 credits before his death. Um, He he had a reputation for being a typical British casting point. Um, You also have... Uh, Henry uh, Henry Travers, who was born in England, um, and we all know Henry Travers as a certain angel who helps George Bailey discover that life is worth living and it's a wonderful life. That's right. Henry Travers is Clarence. Um, and here he is the good Dr. Cranley, uh, and alongside of him is William Harrigan as Dr. Kemp. Uh, William Harrigan... Uh, would play Charlie Chan in the Broadway adaptation of the novel Keeper of the Keys. Um, and he was the original captain in Mr. Roberts. Um, he would rack up a, a sizable amount of credits over the course between 1915 into 1957, with his last film being Street of Sinners. Uh, it looks like he was much more of a stage uh, actor for the most part. 
And uh, we also have Forrester Harvey um, as Una O'Connor's wife. He's uh, He and uh, Reigns had worked together on stage prior. Um, Forrester Harvey would appear in two films for Alfred Hitchcock, um, including The Ring, which is one of his silent films. And also, E.E. E. Clive was in, one of his last films was Foreign Correspondent, which we talked about. So a lot of Hitchcock intertwining with this. Um, now, we've talked a bit about the British side of things, um, but we uh, we have an American star here, um, one who I think she would say, it's been 84 years and I can still smell the fresh paint. The Tyna had never been used. Titanic was called the ship. Oh, wait, no, we're not talking about Titanic, but we are talking about Gloria Stewart. We've alluded to her before, but this is our first real big break in talking about Gloria Stewart. Now, Ryan, did you ever make the connection with Titanic that Gloria Stewart was in these movies? <laughs> oh, no. I, I mean, obviously after the fact, but... Yeah, it's it's something you don't find out until after you watch The Invisible Man or The Old Dark House and go like, it's the same person. They're, she's been at everything um but she um she was uh playing at the pasadena uh, playhouse uh with the seagull when the head of casting at universal saw her um uh had her do a screen test and then a contract was signed um born in 1910 uh she she lived to be a hundred the same age as rose in titanic so she's she's had kind of like this adventurous life like she was she wanted to join the young communist league at uc berkeley when she was attending there majoring in philosophy and drama and she said i was told it was for the poor and oppressed that appealed to me but membership wasn't open to anyone under 18 so i couldn't join so she avoided being called up by huac <laughs> um <laughs> but uh also another thing that would have probably uh, given her less exposure through huac is is that her acting career takes a big dip because she works at universal universal is not giving her the parts that she wants. Um, she has described it in interviews as a cheap studio in the boondocks that, uh, uh, that wasn't making great films. Um, and she married a man named Arthur Sheikman, who was a screenwriter for amongst other people, uh, the Marx brothers. Um, and Groucho Marx called him the fastest wit in the West. Uh, and Sheikman kind of convinced him, convinced her after a certain point to just stop, stop trying. They're not going to give you what you want. Even going to 20th Century Fox, she didn't really get much going for her. Um, she does appear in Mr. and Mrs. North, uh, Arms and the Man and Sailor Beware. Um, but by 1944, she very much disappears from the Hollywood scene. Uh, she appears in small things here and there. Uh, in the 80s, she did appear in Richard Benjamin's film, My Favorite Year, which I think we all know about because of its connection to the Sid Caesar show. And uh, she doesn't get her resurgence really until Titanic when James Cameron um, uh, puts her in the role of Old Rose. Um, so her experience on this film, Ryan, was that she found... Similar to the old dark house, she had a hard time working with the English way of filmmaking. Every every afternoon at four, they broke for tea, and she would feel excluded because she wasn't part of this UK crowd. Um, working with Rain, she said that he was 
withdrawn and a bit uh, self-obsessed and tried to hog, hog the screen whenever they were on it together. And Whale had mm. to basically pull Reigns back um, on his hamminess. So... She Wait, not- you're saying an actor is vain and <laughs> <laughs> No, no, not at all, Ryan. Not at all. They're they're never they're never vain and whatnot. They are doing exactly what they need to do to get the job done. <laughs> now, yeah, Reigns was a bit of a ham. Uh it it's this isn't the only she's not the only person to point this out. Peter Laurie, um, uh has a story about working on the set of, on the set of Casablanca regarding um, his attention to detail and his meticulous preparal f- preparing for a role. Um, so all these all these players are in assemblage, but the biggest player in the Invisible Man is the visual effects department, um, with effects that arguably still stand the test of time. I don't think anybody will ever say that. Um, these effects don't hold up, even if they look dated compared to what we have now, they still work for the movie itself. I, I think you, would no, I think they're incredible. They are. I mean, it, it, just we'll get into it with the plot, but like we have to bring up John Fulton as part of this innovation here because Fulton is, responsible for helping perfect the traveling mat shot, which is what this film is ingratiated in. And, you know, prior to this, he works for the Frank Williams lab in Hollywood where that system was being perfected. Um, He was known around the lot as the doctor. So he was known for fixing things when they brought the Invisible Man... When Universal brought the Invisible Man to Fulton's attention, their biggest question was, can this be done? And he said yes. Now, within that, we're going to start jumping into the plot of the Invisible Man because Fulton's Fulton's work comes up in key scenes that it's worth discussing them as they come about. But let's get it right off the bat. We open up on a snowy fucking day. (laughs) The snow is... Pour, torrenting on the invisible man he goes to the inn he requests a room from una o'connor who is delivering her very distinct delivery in the campy way that she does he wants to be left alone ryan he wants to be left yeah. alone i prefer to be left alone in a sitting room <laughs> <laughs> bring up my meal but don't <laughs> i want to be left alone but bring up my meal and i, I it doesn't matter if you forget the mustard. Oh, I told you not to come in here. I don't care if you've got the mustard now. <laughs> he's he's already showing the signs of withdrawal in there. Um, through here, he we we intercut between him trying to figure out the solution to his invisibility problem with uh, the origin of dr jack griffin and why he's why he's missing and who's looking for him which is uh, really it's dr cranley and his daughter flora are concerned about him dr kemp is wondering what's going on dr kemp also has a crush on flora and uh this uh leads to him basically being similar to uh a romantic rival in Frankenstein. There, there's a lot in the behind the scenes that points to the plot of Frankenstein and the plot of Invisible Man being very similar in terms of their scripts, where you have this romantic rival for the main lead's uh, object of affection, um, and 
in in Frankenstein, the the romantic rival wins, and he's also kind of like a non-entity. In this film, Wales seems to be able to do away with both the romantic rival and the romantic interest too. So he gets to the the leading lady gets nothing <laughs> by the end of the movie. And <laughs> now, Ryan, I had not really started noticing this until a few years ago. You notice that in the um in the scene with Dr. Cranley uh, and Dr. Kemp and then Flora and Kemp, they do this lateral camera move that moves from one, moves from one room to the next. And it's very clear that we're passing through a stage. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this, uh, it, it, this is the same uh, impetus for when we're in theater and you see breakaway sets. I love this shot. Now it is, it reminds me of what, I started like outwardly noticing in Wes Anderson films where he would intentionally like make you aware that you are on a set. Um, and it's funny. I know you're not a huge fan of hereditary, but Ari Aster does the same thing in hereditary. Like he has those breakaway shots from the set. So whale is aware of when this movie is a theater piece and when it is a movie, because when it's a movie, it's cut like a movie, especially when the invisible man, I love when the invisible man enters the, the inn, and it's that series of cuts that slowly push in on him. Kind of like Frankenstein. Like it's yeah. just, it's just an epic shot. Um, and as Kemp is, uh, or as Kemp is trying to comfort Flora, we cut back to Griffin his work is a work a day's work ruined by a foolish old woman because she keeps coming in and interrupting him. <laughs> and Women. She, she, she does her she does her screech and then goes uh, goes to her husband and goes, "If you don't get him out, oh, I will. And I, if you don't get him out, I'm leaving. That's the truth, and I'll mean it this time." <laughs> it is a great line too, where the husband says. She said, it's either you or her, and I have to do, I guess I got to keep her. <laughs> Look, I love Una O'Connor more than life itself. And so if you can't get pay your, if you can't get out of here, mister, I'm kicking you out. And uh, he uh, gets so angry at not being left alone. Actually, it should be pointed out, he does plead. It's not, it's not an excuse for him, but he does plead with humility about like, I'll send some money. I, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be a bother, but I, it's very important that I finish this. He's desperate. He's super desperate. And this innkeeper pushes him to the point where he tosses him down the stairs. <laughs> and yep. you talked about the brutality, Ryan. Rarely do we see blood in these universal monster movies. Rarely do we see like, uh, actualized blood. When Uno O'Connor goes to cradle her husband, there's a huge gash on his forehead. Like yep. it's and it and it really can be seen in detail thanks to the Blu-ray. Like it just it's it's brutal. But of but he's not like completely out of sorts because he is telling Uno O'Connor to shut up. <laughs> um and this is when we get uh, the constable being brought in, E.E. E. Clive as Constable Jaffa's, and he goes, well, I saw this then. And they go, uh, uh, somebody's uh, attacking the inn. And he goes, oh. And they go, and uh, they go, he's upstairs. Oh. I love when he's just going, oh. <laughs> Again, that, 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 that British humor going about. Uh, and uh, this, at this point, the secret's been revealed. 
Claude Rains is invisible. He starts declothing himself. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, the, 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 um, uh, the constable comes in and he goes, he's all eaten away. <laughs> and, uh, Oh, because actually, he reveals himself to the constable because you you're you're peeping through the keyholes and you're uh, you're 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 gaping uh, gaping mouths, and now you'll suffer for it. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. And then he throws his nose at him, and he goes, "Here's a souvenir for you, and one for you. <laughs> I'll show you who I am and what I am." Now. This is where we started to talk about the visual effects. John Fulton did a um, uh, an article for American Cinematographer in June of 1934, and we are going to go through this a bit. But he explains, pulling off the nose, this scene was done by using a dummy and an exact replica of the actor's makeup. And then the unwrapping action from the opposite end was handled in the same fashion as the other half-clad scenes. This is, this is done by multiple printing with traveling mats. We had considerable difficulty getting the actor to move naturally without ever passing his hands in front of himself. So that shot of him taking off the nose and whatnot is a dummy wrapped around in the uh, black velvet. Um, but you also have stand-in actors in there holding their hands. So it's a combination of different factors. And when you see him unraveling that bandage, it is a, it, it's still shocking. It's still amazing. Um, I, I just, I'm floored by it. Now, in this particular scene, Ryan, I, there's got to be one element of it that impresses you the most um, when it comes to that moment when he's fighting those constables. I'm going to make a case for him taking off his pants not because not because of any dirty reason but it's just it's just amazing it's like the first moment where you realize like oh my god they're pulling this effect off like the unwrapping of the head is one thing but him being able to well, declothe. I, think, <laughs> I think all of it works really well and i you know it's it, it's so impressive for a movie that's 90 years old and i think there's this stigma for, for movies from that time that they're very static, you know, there's not much energy and the special effects don't hold up where this one, I mean, the camera is moving a lot. The, the special effects are incredible and how they pulled it off is really cool. And yeah, it's, I think that whole sequence is really great because he goes, and that's really the turning point for his character too. He throws a dude down the stairs and you know, then he realizes he can get away with anything. Yeah, that's when the, that's when his power fully becomes realized. He tosses himself. Uh, he he tosses himself about the about the room in a shirt. Like I love the shot of him in a shirt, like running away from people before he escapes. And the constable does say before they go up there, he's invisible. That's what he is. If he don't get get it, if if he gets his clothes off, we won't catch him in a thousand years. <laughs> And he gets out, he escapes and he wreaks havoc on this village. He steals a bike which, and the bike, the invisible bike effect, the bike is on a track um, with a and uh, with a th fine, th fine, invisible, fine wire above to balance it, to make it look like it's being ridden in balance by somebody occupying the seat. Now there are combinations of, wire frame uh, work in addition to the black velvet effect. And R.C. Sheriff 
before Fulton even came before Fulton even came on board or what I guess he just wasn't really revealing his secrets yet. But R.C. Sheriff made a note in the script for the undressing scenes. He says, I suggest that the photography be employed here as far as possible with the aid of invisible wireframes manipulated by the marionette method. And Fulton said regarding these wireframes, they could not be used for the clothes would look empty, would hardly move naturally. So we had the recourse to the multiple printing with variations. So, but there are, there is scenes of wire work. And I will say that for the most part, the wire work is very hard to detect. Um, there are moments where it's very obvious, but then there are moments where it's uh, it's very. The only reason we know it's wire work is because the movement looks like wire work. It's not because we're necessarily seeing the wire. The first time you see the wire, though, it is pretty obvious because it's the vial that he throws at the picture of Uno O'Connor, which I'm sure that's an image that Smokey loves uh, from uh, Rated H. Um, but uh, <laughs> you can see that the wire's there. But then when he does the bike, you can see the track line. But then in the next shot, it's moving on its own and you can barely see anything. So I guess it depends on how close the camera is to the object that's moving. will determine, can you see the wireframe? Um, now, even if you could see the wireframe, I think you'd, you and I would agree it doesn't take away from the movie. Oh, no. I, I think you're, you give it some latitude of forgiveness in films like this. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, they're doing the best they can with what, <laughs> they they're ava- they have available to them. Yeah, they at didn't the time. have digital effects at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, now these, uh, in regards to these uh, filming these scenes, Fulton explains how a lot of this is done. With most of the scenes involved normal characters, so we photographed these scenes in the normal manner, but without any trace of the Invisible Man. All the action, of course, had to be carefully timed as in any other double exposure work. The negative was then developed in a normal manner. The scenes in which he is totally invisible, of course, very simple for anything that may move about, such as furniture, a book, or a bicycle, etc., could be moved by fine wires invisible to the camera and thereby give exactly the right effect. But, as we're going to learn, the shots get more complicated. But he is wreaking havoc. Um, he abandons the bicycle and throws a broom at people. He antagonizes a grandfather. And then he throws a brick through a window and you hear this one aside voiceover that says, we do our part. This is in, do you know this is what this is in regards to, Ryan? No. So this is, so you'll see a, at the top of the movie, you see a credit for the NRA, we do our part. This is the National Recovery Administration set up by the Roosevelt administration to alleviate the effects of the Great Depression by, uh, amongst other things, collect, protecting collective bargaining rights for unions and providing work through the PWA, the Public Works Administration. Um, this is basically designed to get America back on its feet to bring us out of the depression that was set upon by wealth gone amok. Um, now, all this all this banter that he does, by the way, these asides, they're not written in the script. And a lot of it was done in post-production by Reigns after the fact. And much of his dialogue is either recorded before or after. So in scenes where he's even on screen, a lot of it is pre-recorded already. So the actor may already know, they already know timing-wise where things are going to go. And they're able to match it up better in post. And... This is where we 
start getting the impetus of the plot, which is Griffin escapes and finds himself back at Kemp's house. Um, and in a very, very uh, noteworthy scene, um, he has entered the room by uh, getting through the window. Kemp is listening to the radio. Um, this is something I never knew until today, Ryan. The song on the on the radio was initially Hearts and Flowers, um, or, or was originally La Rosita, sorry, uh, a 1923 s- semi-standard. But years later, they re-edited uh, that scene and replaced the song with Hearts and Flowers on an uptight piano, upright piano. Um, Rudy Belmer in the commentary says that this might have been due to music rights. So when they couldn't clear the rights again to La Rosita, they replaced the song years later. So we don't technically have the original release of The Invisible Man in our midst. There's another cut of this movie that has the music uh, in a different, has different music coming out of the radio. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, the only modern day comparison that I can make to this is whenever you have, I mean, we, we're both shout and scream factory guys. When the, when they, when shout does a television show, if they start a project and then have to abandon it, they've explained in the past that some of that is due to music rights because some of those TV shows of the past have licensed music that it, that might be too expensive years down the line. So like, yeah, I mean, I have a uh, Alf, the complete series and I know that they don't have Bob Seeger at the beginning and a couple <laughs> other uh, music cues because it's just so expensive. Yeah. And if, if I was like Bob Seeger or, yeah you can still use my music for alf like who cares yeah you mean that puppet thing sure (laughs) he eats cats i like cats too (laughs) bob c (laughs) um well not only that happy days i think is is a grand example of that too because only the first four or five seasons are available on dvd and they stopped at a certain point because there's so much fucking 50s music in there that's worth a lot of money (laughs) yeah And like, if you get the Happy Days DVDs, by the way, guys, you will notice that they use the same uh, music on a loop for the uh, for the transitions um, and for other elements because that's what they had to do in order to release those things as cheap as possible. <laughs> um, here's hoping that they fix that and get it on streaming soon because I want the entirety of Happy Days, not just the first five seasons. But um, anyway. We move along, and Kemp uh, Kemp is startled to see that the radio has shut itself off, and Griffin demands that he gets uh, that he uh, that uh, Kemp get him some clothes, and he uh, goes through his spiel. He he uh, talks about how, in trying to discover a reversal of the formula, he discovered that he had the power to rule to make the world grovel at his feet. Uh, they, I love this line about, we will begin with a reign of terror. A few, a few murders here and there. Murders of great men, murders of little men, just to show we make no distinction. They might even break a train or two. Just these fingers around a signalman's throat. That's all. <laughs> this guy's off his fucking rocker, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, and he follows through with all those threats. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. It's, um, it's, I think that 
Reigns, Reigns' voice is complemented by his presence as an actor. And something that is very, very uh, noticeable about uh, what James Whale decides to do is that he wants to make sure that you're not just relying on the voice. He said to Film Weekly, it's all very well to film scenes without the actor, but I knew I had in some way to let the audience know clearly that that the actor was there all the time, even though he was invisible. Therefore, in nearly every one of the invisible scenes, I had to devise bits of business so that the audience should know when the man was, man was there, what he was doing, and so on. In one scene, I had him sit in a rocking chair so that by the movements of the chair, the audience would know he was there. Although there was no sign of his presence, he's sitting in a chair, talking to another person. I showed the seat of the chair sagging slightly as he sat down. Then when his voice became more con- confidential, I had the chair moved a few inches towards the other person as the invisible man draws closer for a more intimate conversation. That's something I think worthy to bring up is that if you want evidence of James Whale's brilliance as a director, if you have an Invisible Man movie, we take it for granted today that an Invisible Man movie needs to have invisible things moving about or indication of movement to suggest that he's there or she's there if it's the Invisible Woman. He had to he had to innovate the way this is blocked. He had to innovate invisible blocking. That's insane. <laughs> mm. That's like I, I you don't think about it that in order to set this up, not just for the visual front, but also to make sure the audience knows what's going on, that you have to indicate it through movement. And it's not, we can, again, we take it for granted today, but an audience back in that time would, uh, would need that guidance. And whale is the one who says, this is how we do this for dramatic purposes. We're not just doing this for effect. We want you to believe that this man is an actual character that actually exists. And I think that, the brilliance of it comes into this moment here because that scene where he is smoking a cigarette and rocking back and forth in the chair. And also he grabs a uh, fire poker and raises it to tell Kemp to sit down. You, you, you take that for granted, but thanks to the voice and the action indicating where he is, it just works. It just beautifully beautifully captures the tension and the terror that you're supposed to feel in that moment. Um, and it can't be stated un- enough to that. Well, uh, what Harrigan's really good in this movie as Kemp. He's a good little weasel. <laughs> very, yeah. very fun. We- weaselly character. Um, and of course he tells Kemp that he's going to Kemp. You're going to help me. Meanwhile, the invisible man has to go back to the village to get his books because he left them at the inn. We go back to the inn where the the constable is trying to tell the chief inspector that <laughs> there's an invisible man running around and he goes like, I don't think this is an actual thing that's going on and I think you're all fucking high. <laughs> and he's about to sign off on the notion that there's no invisible man and nothing's going on, but as Kemp and Claude Rains go back to take back the books, Claude Rains decides to further his reign of terror by killing this police chief. (laughs) 
and causing havoc yeah, like, in the end. <laughs> it's insane. That scene is insane because you have the whole bar freaking out. Like it's so well choreographed. And this is one of those moments where I think Una O'Connor shrieking is an additional factor to the insanity. Like you talked about how everybody thinks that these movies are stilted or slow. Arguably there's so much fucking energy in this movie. <laughs> thanks to either vocal performance, speed of the performance or Claude Rains's power. This movie is not boring. <laughs> no, it moves so fast and it's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> it just, yeah. It, it never relents. It just, it keeps going and going and going and you know, it's 70 minutes and you realize you, Oh, this ending is happening really soon. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to get to that pretty soon. Like after his reign of terror, we go through a series of like, everybody's being told over the radio about an invisible man, a thousand dollars reward for anybody who has information leading to the capture of the invisible man. Um, there's, I love the shot of uh, there. There's a dance hall and they punch in on the radio. And then after they show a montage of people being made aware of the invisible man, they punch out of the radio and people have left the dance hall. It's a nice little small moment. Like not, not like the best thing in the world, but it's like a small moment to indicate the panic and the terror after you were hearing it on the radio. Um, and we get this infamous scene involving not just him eating, but then undressing his bandages in front of a mirror. And I'm going to go through Fulton's entire thing on this because this is the most complicated shot and it explains the traveling mat and black velvet. He says, as stated earlier, the scenes involving the invisible man partially clothed, totally invisible with props such as cigarettes, lighters, etc. being visible along with other characters on the set were photographed in a normal manner, but without any evidence of the invisible man and or the handled props. The negative was then developed. Then after the film, entire film was done filming, Fulton and his crew, along with Mr. Jimmy, Jimmy Whale, uh, began the special process work. We used completely black set, walled and flat with black velvet to be as no, uh, be as nearly non-reflective as possible our actor was garbed from head to foot in black velvet tights with black gloves and black headpieces rather like a diver's helmet over this war he wore whatever clothes might be required this gave us a picture that of the unsupported clothes moving around on a dead black field from this negative we made a print and a duplicate negative, which we intensified to serve as mats for printing. Then with an ordinary printer, we proceeded to complete our make our composite. And for the mirror scene, he says, this shot had to show the man himself from the rear and his reflection in the mirror. Ordinarily, this would be done simple enough, but when you had to add the difficulties of showing himself unwrapping in the mirror, you have some complicated problems to solve. This required four separate shots, which, take, which were combined by traveling matte printing systems into a single picture. First, there was the shot on the wall and the mirror with the mirror. And the mirror with the mirror itself masked off by black velvet. Then a separate shot of the opposite wall in the room as reflected in the mirror. Thirdly, the shot of the invisible man from the rear unwrapping his bandages. And lastly, the reflection of him from the front doing the exact same act. All of these had to be perfectly coordinated and matched in viewpoint, perspective, and action to a fraction of an inch. Several of the negatives require hand retouching. And last but not least, the action had 
had to be figured out so far that in advance that the hands of the actor did not pass between himself and the camera or between the reflection of the camera. It was the most difficult shot I had ever made. This, that's insane. And we know about optical printing from this and also Disney innovates this a lot too. Like, that's insane to look at how many shots are in that one scene. Oh man, it just shows like the hard work they put into <laughs> making this movie with without what without it a is, computer, you know, with it, and how much it takes to um, make a film like this back then. I mean, it's not just a trick in the camera; it's several tricks and. I couldn't even imagine pulling those shots off now because now you, you take it for granted. You put some dude in a green suit, blue suit, they run around and then they just digitally take them out. Yeah. And, and uh, here's something else to think to, to consider and how astounding this is. They said that the lighting matching the lighting with their effect shots and from, from what was shot by Arthur Edison on behind the camera on set for the main action in the film was a huge difficulty. You don't have video playback really back then. You can watch dailies after they've been processed, but to match the exact lighting to make sure that it, everything lines up, that's fucking difficult. That's, that's insane. And no, undoubtedly you brought up like, you know, we could put somebody in a green suit and this is all taken care of for us. A lot of these problems had to be solved practically so that somebody down the line can look at it and figure out, those are the problems that need to be perfected and rectified for any computer system that utilizes CGI or uh, de-aging or invisible effects, etc. Those problems had to be solved practically before they could be applied to the digital frontier that we experience today. So it would be amazing actually to watch somebody try these practical in-camera effects today with film, especially with film stock being what it is and the ability for playback in a better way to show lighting conditions. Because I, this movie by consequence has meticulous camera work because it's both necessary to the story and necessary to the visual effect. And uh, I, I, you look at what Peter Jackson ended up innovating with both practical and CGI in Lord of the Rings, or uh, even let's go further back, Star Wars, uh, incorporating those miniatures and the special effects needed to pull off Star Wars. It all begins here, and it's all trying to capture as much as you can in camera before it becomes an all-digital frontier. Um, now, we move along with the plot, though. Kemp... Uh, terrified out of his fucking wits, uh, calls Dr. Cranley and Flora and then calls the police. Cranley and Gloria Stewart head to the house and we get the really the only scene between Griffin and Flora. And uh, we're basically told through this that Griffin felt inadequate that he couldn't provide a comfortable living for Flora and he wanted to do something of great that great men of science have done. Again, he's arrogant. His arrogance is amplified by the monocaine drug. Um, and I love him in this moment because I think, I think Gloria Stewart's good in the scene. I think what she's really good at is, is feeding 
the transition between calm and absolutely mad for Reigns in that scene because he goes from rather rational to rather insane in the span of what less than t- two minutes. <laughs> it's insane and he goes that whole line about like uh even the moon's frightened of me the whole world's frightened to death like there's some iconic imagery in there of a man in bandages it's insane how well that those moments work and of course the police show up claude rains is is pissed and he escapes not before telling Kemp I believe me as surely as the sun will set and the moon will rise I shall kill you tomorrow night at 10 o'clock I shall kill you and the whole plot becomes then about protecting Kemp uh, and catching the invisible man a plot is devised by the police okay here's a net (laughs) (laughs) okay okay let's get to the let's we're having fun with the movie. We've talked about the innovations of it. Now let's get down to the nitty gritty. How effective is this plan by the police to catch him? They've got a couple of fucking ideas here. <laughs> <laughs> the, the net. I love the whole idea of traveling with a net across a room. The one that makes me laugh because it just, it's staged sillily because I think even James whale realizes how silly this all is is they have a net wrapped around a blockade of them to protect Kemp inside of it. (laughs) And they're marching down the street in a net. (laughs) It's almost like, I don't know, like far be it for me to try to figure out what the police would actually do if a, if an invisible man existed, (laughs) I guess you can't say that this is not a plan. (laughs) I, uh, the, the another one that's also good is they have like spray painters and they're going to try to spray paint all around the area and they have uh, dirt placed on the roofs of the walls so that if a slight movement is made, you'll see the dirt move, which this plan fails because a cat gets up there <laughs> and one of the cops <laughs> blindly spray paints that cat. <laughs> the most inept police I've ever seen. Yeah, oh, my God. It. Are they dumber in Plan 9 from Outer Space than they are here? <laughs> Sorry, my dogs just went crazy there. No, it's all good. Well, they saw an invisible man in your house, Ryan. They, yeah, they would. <laughs> Claude Rains is in your house going, hello, Ryan. <laughs> Mind if I hang out here and, I don't know, commit a few murders? <laughs> it is after 10, and he hasn't shown up yet. I, I didn't say I would kill you. I said I would kill Kemp, and he's your next-door neighbor, isn't he? <laughs> Um, no, but, uh, actually I love when they're discussing the plan and you have that cop that comes from behind the little spray painted wall and he's got a mustache and he just goes like, Oh, I guess that'll work. (laughs) He just disappears. (laughs) Uh, another scene when he's escaping Kemp's office, they have them all with their arms and, uh, clasped together, making a huge circle. I love the shot of the cop being pulled by his legs and being pulled away from the chain and being dragged down. It just feels so brutal. Um, and then we, we reveal that in the uh, attempts to trap uh, Griffin and uh, save Kemp, Kemp is brought to the police station, but then smuggled out of the police station in a policeman's uniform back to his place. But Griffin is smarter than that. So he stays behind in Kemp's car because he realizes that as soon as Kemp can, he's going to get as far away as possible. But of course, no one can escape the invisible man. Um, now, p- 
prior to him being captured, though, Ryan, we should talk about uh, the greatest kill sequence in uh, Universal Monster history. This fucking train. <laughs> now, when we when we first met and we connected on the Invisible Man, we agreed the Invisible Man has the highest kill count, and uh, in Universal history. Um, did you notice that right away? Like, did you realize oh, that right yeah. away? I did. No, yeah, not even. <laughs> I didn't even think not about even close. it. Yeah, I mean. I'm glad that you did because when I first saw the movie, I didn't even think about the fact that with him derailing a train, he has a higher kill count than most monsters in any film. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, he's killed hundreds of people. <laughs> yep. And uh, this shot of the train derailing is a miniature at three fourths scale designed by Charlie Baker of the universal miniatures department. This train crash would be recycled in several other universal monster pieces or several universal uh, picture pieces, including the train derailment that is seen in Sherlock Holmes and the voice of terror. This is the same derailment. They just reuse the footage. Um, and it, it's arguably brutal, not just because he derails the train, but because of the way he knocks out the, the uh, attendant at the switch <laughs> just beats him over the head yep. with that, with that lamp. And like I said, said, he's a bastard. <laughs> he's an absolute bastard. And he's about to prove that even further because he's in the car with Kemp. He reveals himself to Kent. Kemp, he they have him pull over. He drags Kemp out by his scarf, like just choking the shit out of him. And yeah, well, he also his description of how he's gonna die when the car crashes. Jeez, dude. <laughs> oh my god, like he um just sit there. I'm gonna go out and give you a shove. You'll tumble down, you'll do a somersault and tumble down and might even break your neck. Like, oh my God, he is, he is dastardly. And he, and he, he says goodbye to Kemp with, well, goodbye, Kemp. I always knew you were a coward. You are dirty, sneaking little rat as well. <laughs> Shuts the door, pushes that car off. And you see that car go kaboom. <laughs> that yep. shot is brutal. That shot is fucking brutal. And then we get to the finale of the movie. The police have, have exhausted all options. They're like, well, we don't know what to do. <laughs> we can't catch him. And amidst Griffin trying to hide out, he hides out in a barn and he sleeps in the hay. And this is, for the listeners at home, this is the problem. And this is the lesson you all need to learn. You can't, you can't be an invisible man and try to instill a reign of terror if you're going to sleep in a barn to hide out and audibly snore. That's the thing. Snoring gets <laughs> gives him away. This farmer comes in and hears the snoring, and he goes to the police and goes, it's the invisible man, all right? He's sleeping in my barn. <laughs> uh, and uh, the at this time, this it's also snowing outside, so this is the opportune moment. They'll never get another chance like this. They instill a plan to surround the barnyard and the uh, surrounding countryside to catch him. Uh, the, uh, they draw him out by setting fire to the, uh, uh, to set fire to the barn. And we get this shot of the, I think this is arguably one of the most undervalued or under appreciated shots in the invisible man is the footprints. Um, yeah. cause like we, we think about the unclothing and the undressing, but these footprints are fucking wonderful. And Fulton explained how this was done. Uh, 
we dug a trench along the line where we wanted the footprints uh, and covered the trench with a board in which footprints had been cut. The footprint openings were filled with wooden outlines which had been cut to make the footprints. These were more su- these were supported by pegs extended to the bottom of the trench and a rope was looped around the pegs so that when so then by pulling upon it upon the pegs it would pull them out causing the snow to drop down through the holes giving the perfect footprints. So it's all from uh underneath. So they're kind of underneath and I I would love to know if that set is um how elevated it was for them to get underneath to pull those pegs or if it's pretty low to the ground because it's not like um it's not like a muppet stage where they have a, a enough room underneath for the puppet performers to stand and do their thing like you're probably talking about like it's only a small portion off the ground um and the invisible man gets shot down we see the silhouette plump over uh, onto the ground. Uh, he is brought to the hospital and Dr. Cranley is called, Dr. Cranley is called with Flora saying he doesn't have long as he dies. The power of the invisibility will drain with him. We get a scene of an invisible person in bed. Uh, and, uh, we got Griffin going like, I should, I, I tempered with things that men should just leave alone. So we get the convenient and the moral ending at the end. Um, which I don't think it takes away from the oh, terror no, we just no. seen. But it is like very much like, oh, I was a fool. If only I had not been insane. <laughs> if only I hadn't killed over hundreds of people. If only I didn't have a kill count higher than Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers put together. <laughs> that, train, it's what, that train that did it, I would have been sent to 10,000 years in prison for this. Um, and uh, as he dies... Uh, there's a series of shots um, which utilize a series of dummies combined with plaster pillow, a plaster, uh, a plaster getup of the dummies uh, and paper mache blankets and sheets to show that the invisible man is none other than a young looking Claude Rains. <laughs> and, mm. and that's when the movie ends a universal picture. Um, we, I, I wanted to point this out by the way too. um, Universal music, when it comes to the monsters, uh, is foundational but scattered in certain respects because Franz Waxman has undeniably the cream of the crop score with um, Bride of Frankenstein, which I believe you bought the record for that, the vinyl for that, Ryan, correct? I did. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, it's one that I would love to still get, but... The music for Universal monster movies has been all over the place. Like obviously Dracula and Mummy use Swan Lake as its motif. Um, you have the themes coming in of Frankenstein, the Black Cat, and uh, the Black Cat and the Invisible Man had the same composer behind them, Hans Romfeld. But much like the Black Cat, they utilized music from other materials whether classical composition or other original compositions did you know that the invisible man beginning credits music and end credits music is taken from the flash gordon serials (laughs) that is that is interesting because i don't think we'd associate this music with anything but the invisible man but there's a time when it's flash gordon (laughs) which you know what? Flash Gordon got revenge because it does have a killer soundtrack by Queen. <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
we have we have just witnessed the Invisible Man, Ryan, a a, a powerhouse of filmmaking. Um, I'd like to ask you before we talk about the reception, what what do you think your favorite moment in this movie is, hands down? If you had to pick a moment. Oh, jeez. Um, I, I love when he's talking to Kemp um, at by the fire about what he's going to do. I, I love the paranoia of that whole sequence uh, between not only Kemp, but also of the invisible one, because he's paranoid that Kemp's going to call the police. Kemp's paranoid, obviously, that he's going to kill him. So there's this uh, tension throughout, I don't know, maybe the 10 minutes that that takes place over. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably my favorite moment in the film. Uh, that's that's a good one. Um, I would go with the moment he reveals himself because it's a combination of shock and humor all at once. But tied for it would definitely be him talking to Kemp and describing his plans and his machinations. Um, also, we didn't talk about it, but I do have a favorite funny scene, which may, be, may, end, up, may end up being yours. I'm not sure. Um, but when he has stolen the cop's pants and is skipping down a country road singing here we, here we go, go gathering nuts, nuts in may nuts in may nuts in may here we go gathering nuts in may on a cold and frosty morning <laughs> which i think is one of those moments that lends to the uh uh humor of the piece the 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 full humor of the piece and uh, it's just it's again it's just an example of how astounding the film is on several fronts um so let's get into the reception of this uh after final costs uh within uh special effects the budget totaled out at three hundred and twenty eight thousand dollars and thirty three hundred and twenty eight thousand thirty three dollars um so this film was made within a reasonable budget but also managed to uh, uh innovate in the process Following an October 26 press screening, a reviewer for The Hollywood Reporter described it a legitimate offspring of the family that produced Frankenstein and Dracula and said that it would fare better than either of its predecessors. Um, and the film had its uh, screen first screening on October 31st, 1933 at the Kiva Theater in Greeley, Colorado. So this movie premiered oh, in Colorado, wow. Ryan. <laughs> in Greeley, of all places. Gre- right. Yeah, I know. Couldn't have been... Couldn't have been Denver or any of the cool places. No, Greeley, Colorado. Uh, and it uh, premiere screenings also took place in Chicago, where it premieres at the Palace Theater on November 10th, 1933, in New York's Roxy Theater on the 17th of November, and Los Angeles at the RKO, RKO Hill Street Theater on November 17th, 1933. And you might be wondering why it scatters a bunch of uh, theaters. Again, Universal did not have its own chain of theaters, so they're literally renting out theaters from other people. Uh, in order to uh, get their films out there. In fact, the monster movies were such a huge draw that any theater that could get their hands on them would get their hands on them because it would bring in the box office. It played to nearly empty houses in L.A. and then went even better at New York's Roxy Theater where it earned $26,000 in its first three days, broke records for the 32-33 season, 80,000 patrons saw the film in four days with $42,000 being collected during the week, leading the film to continue for a second week. Overall, this movie 
makes a boatload of money for Universal. Uh, it it doesn't I it doesn't sound like it hits the same uh uh powerhouse as Frankenstein. We don't have the exact figures of what this movie made all told, but it sounds like if it doesn't exceed Frankenstein, it at least matches it or comes within reason. Uh, the Invisible Man grow. Uh, uh, the the legacy of this film it inspired a series within Universal Monsters, as did pretty much every Universal Monster to come down the pipeline, with the exception of the Phantom of the Opera. Uh, we had the Invisible Man Returns in 1940 with Vincent Price. The Invisible Woman in 1940 uh, with John Barrymore. Invisible Agent in 1942 featuring an unfortunate uh, Peter Lorre in Yellowface. Um, but also Sir Cedric Hardwick. Uh, and also Invisible, Invisible Agent is wonderful because it's about the Invisible Man fighting Nazis. Uh, and then The Invisible Man's Revenge from 1944 featuring John Carradine and Evelyn Anchors and Gail Sundegard. Um, uh as we have talked about, the special effects in this film are the key innovation. Uh, arguably, all of the visual effects work you see today in your Marvel movies or even your horror movies have uh, have have a debt to pay to something like The Invisible Man, telling you that the idea is possible. It's not that we've we've changed our methods in getting the job done, but the ideas are still there. This and King Kong coming out in 1933 is the year of visual effects. You know, like both of those movies tell you that the impossible is possible. Um, and as far as the property of the invisible man itself today, uh, we brought it up earlier, but there've been other invisible man movies, memoirs of an invisible man by John Carpenter, which has its fans like me. Um, uh, you've got Hollow Man, the Paul Verhoeven movie, which, uh, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's a, it's a movie. It's a, it's a yeah. movie. I have no desire to watch it again, but it's a movie. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, Lee Wannell, uh, rebooted the monster within the universal canon with Blumhouse's The Invisible Man from 2020, which really, I don't remember seeing a credit that says based on the novel by H.G. Wells because I do believe that they took the barest minimum requirements out of the Universal and H.G. Wells books, i.e. the inventor's name is Griffin, but the story becomes about an abusive relationship. And yeah, if the goal of the Invisible Man at that time is to make it f scary by the idea of an Invisible Man who's murdering people left and right, Lee Wannell does the natural progression of that by incorporating a real life terror into the mix. Um, so instead of being afraid of these uh, machinations of dictators or uh, fascist uh, leaders in the thirties, we're dealing with the threat of an abusive relationship, something close to the emotional heart. And uh, additionally, the, uh, the legacy of Claude Rains becomes solidified because with this debut, he goes on to do two more films for Universal, The Man Who Reclaimed His Head and The Mystery of Edwin Drood, before signing a non-exclusive contract with Warner Brothers. He was one of the actors that was only paid whenever he was working on a film and wasn't tied directly to the studio so he could move in and out, um, which 
I had a question about that in regards to how we know Cary Grant's contract went. Was contract what was was Cary Grant's contract that same thing? Because he wasn't tied to one studio, he was basically a free agent, right? Yeah, I mean he he had I think his he did have um, even when he was exclusive, he did have deals with studios, right? But he had a right to not make the movies right um and he you know he worked deals where he would make all the money off of the prints so he would get the movie then he'd get the print and then when television came a thing he sold them to the television right which and, is why he was fucking rich by the end <laughs> yeah um but yeah he had kind of the same thing where i mean he had a deal with columbia but he didn't have to make a columbia picture if he didn't want to Right. It's kind of, I think they, I think nowadays they call it right to first refusal or something like that. Yeah. That sounds about that. That sounds about right. And it's interesting. I didn't real, I, I didn't realize it until it was clarified for me that Reigns would have the same deal because obviously he goes back to universal in 1940s for not just the Wolfman, but the remake of the Phantom of the Opera, which, um, exists. <laughs> You've watched yeah. it, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's all right. It, it's it's a movie. <laughs> it's a movie. Uh, it's Lon Chaney made the better movie. We'll leave it at that. Uh, but he also, but again, he also he's he's Talbot Senior in uh, the Wolfman. Um, he has another great horror moment with uh, even a man who says his prayers at night, and uh, even a man who is pure at heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Um, stay tuned for when we eventually talk about the Wolfman. Uh, so yeah, we've just talked about the Invisible Man, Ryan, a uh, uh, a powerhouse in the Universal uh, market. Now, however, as we've talked about, he's obviously the most malevolent and the most devious. But it seems like he sometimes be he gets uh, short shrift when it comes to the mainstream uh, legacy because usually it's Dracula or Frankenstein. Um, I, I I almost wonder how he gets shoved to the side so often, um, even uh, even my, within the respect of the makeup for Frankenstein. <laughs> my my whole thing with that is he's not your traditional monster. Mm-hmm. He's not a vampire. He's not a werewolf. He's not a cobbled together zombie. He's he's a man, and so I think the term of a monster is lost. If that makes sense. Yeah. Where you don't, because his name's the invisible man and he's not, he's not a traditional monster quote unquote, because he doesn't have, uh, you know, bolts coming out of his neck or he doesn't have fangs. He's, he's a monster because of who he is, not because of what he appears to be. And I think that gets lost in, uh, on some people, but I mean, I think this week the 4K version of it comes out and he's included in the first set. So Right. And you you brought up that he's not a traditional monster. Something to also bring up is that <clears throat> a lot of uh you know, with Frankenstein, it's a monster created by science, but it looks like something that came from from beyond, uh, or from the netherworld. Like it, it doesn't look natural. As the Invisible Man, he his physical appearance has only changed in it so much as that he's completely gone, but he's not disfigured or um, he doesn't look like a monster. 
but the science is the is what creates them and i think that with the exception of frankenstein most of the universal monsters have a supernatural tendency behind them so Mm -hmm. you have uh or or a, or a biological one like science by way of nature in in the case of um, creature from the black lagoon, but Wolfman, Mummy, Dracula, uh, uh, other werewolf films prior to the Wolfman. This is all based in disfigurement or supernatural that addresses the human condition, and this one's using science to address the dangers of how much power one man can hold. So I do think that it, and also one thing that we kind of bandied about is, is that it's a sci-fi movie too. So it could be, it it gets lumped into two categories. And there's an argument that some people could say, well, this isn't an actual horror movie. Why are you doing this for the horror month? And it's like, well, it is though, because his acts are monstrous. That's why he's a universal monster. Uh, that and the fact that Universal was tying him into that whole affair. Um, and in fact, it's even further cemented by Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein because at the very end, you know, just when you think Bud and Lou have gotten away from the monsters, you see a cigarette floating in the air and you hear Vincent Price going, allow me to introduce myself. I'm the Invisible Man. <laughs> and uh, that's... Uh, They also meet him a couple years later. <laughs> yes, they do. Which, oh my God, whenever we get to talk about Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. the The beauty of that boxing scene is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> that is so well choreographed. I love it. Um, but yes, the uh, this film is in the Library of Congress uh, as being recognized as culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Uh, undeniable uh, that this film has left the legacy that it has. Um, we're still obsessed by the idea of invisibility to this day. Uh, and it all starts with this one idea out of H.G. Wells that blossoms into the innovation of John Fulton and the expert direction of one James Whale. Um, so, Ryan, uh, do you have any final thoughts on The Invisible Man and uh, where we see it and works today? Um, the only thing I would say is that it's the most, uh, I think it's the best monster movie. I think it's the one that's, uh, forgotten about the most and I implore everybody I don't know why they listen to our ramblings about it for so long if they haven't seen it already but hopefully we've changed some minds and people will now go watch it and say you know what he is the scariest monster in their lineup yeah it's I, I think that once you watch this film you will walk away blown away by everything and how it holds up but also that the true terror in the Universal Monster series, hands down, is a simple scientist who wants to be left alone. Uh, thank you again, Ryan. Uh, remind the lovely people of the listening audience where they can find your lovely work in the podcasting world. Oh, man. For 10 years, I've been doing a podcast called Real Nerds Podcast. That sounds insane. Um, Why would you do that? <laughs> I know. And. Um, you can uh, follow me at Real Nerds. You can also follow me personally at as cool at Cool as Frost. Uh, but I really just use that to retweet Real Nerd stuff. But you know, if you're feeling frosty one day, do it. Um, yeah, I'm on Real Nerds. Or is on Facebook. We're on Instagram, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. 
if you know where to find podcasts, you can find Real Nerds Podcast. Yeah. And if this is your first time listening to the show, listeners, Ryan's been on two other Ballyhoos talking about uh, Cary Grant with a double bill of Mr. Lucky and The Awful Truth. And he also engaged in a little bit of Jack Benny talk with To Be or Not To Be. Um, in an episode that I still like going back to a lot because it's fun listening to us giggle about Jack's performance in that movie because he, he's great. Yep. He's great. And, and you know how I feel about Miss Lombard. Oh, yeah, well, of course. The beauty of the legendary Lombard. Um, and Ryan, of course, we will have you back because as discussed prior, we, you're not done with James Whale. You're not done with James Whale. You're That's not going to escape him because we will talk about an Irene Dunn double bill of Showboat, the movie that... <laughs> The movie that led to the dismantlement of the Lemley legacy at Universal <laughs> and uh, My Favorite Wife, which is a reteaming with Grant and Leo McCary by way of producing. So uh, we've got a lot of stuff to look forward to in that front. And you're also going to be involved in the Houston series whenever it happens. We've already talked about what you're going to be doing with that. So uh, stay tuned, yep. ladies and gentlemen. Um, yes, I love old movies, and I love that Zach does a podcast about old movies. Yep, <laughs> that's why that's why I bring him on regularly because he's he's the one person within the Real Nerds group that I can geek out about this stuff with and have a good time. <laughs> Uh, and uh, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back half of the show. Uh, on the next episode, we will conclude our horror month, um, which kind of got assembled last minute. Um, I will announce it here. You are getting the return of the Poptimistic Boys as we are going to shift from Universal over to RKO and Winchester Pictures for Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World. Ooh. Is it scary? Uh, John Carpenter's. No, no, no. Watch. <laughs> shh, 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 shh. We are going to talk about how John Carpenter's movie is better. Shh. <laughs> but yes, we will talk about the original Thing from Another World that kicked off the uh, entire concept of uh, who is the actual monster and how you can trust no one. Uh, and then after our horror month, we will be digging into a couple of different factors. First of all, we will be returning with uh, the world of uh uh, comedy classics uh, with a long talk about the Marx Brothers featuring the uh, guests Tyler Maybe and Andrew Sanders of Pop Culture Brews. Uh, we will also be talking about LGBTQ representation in Golden Age Hollywood with a talk with J. Allen Rickard on Rebel Without a Cause and the Children's Hour. And uh, this will be recorded today. Uh, we will be joined again by Adam Jewell to talk about Paul Newman, Jackie Gleason, and some pool. That's right. We're going to talk The Hustler, guys. Um, oh, I love that movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. And we will be talking a little bit about how it's one of those movies where a sequel was made years later. Um by, by a certain uh, high energetic. Show me the money. <laughs> by, by, you know, it's funny. Scorsese and Cruz have a lot of energy about them. <laughs> they both have yes. a, a perky personality. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, until all of that, until next time, folks, just remember when you think to yourself of how terrified you were at the thought of an invisible man strangling you from behind or dragging your feet to God places unknown. Just sit back comfortably in your chair, snuggle up in the, in the confines of a blanket, and just remember, there are such things. Good night. I failed. I meddled in things. And man must leave alone. Father, 
come quickly. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Yeah.